On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbV. To support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or on your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by Matt Fortuna. This is our St- Notre Dame State of the Program podcast. Um, that article is up on The Athletic today. You can check it out. Sort of our, uh, I don't know, how's our, what is our editorial team calling him? Sort of like a, a physical of the program that you cover, um, opposed to just an overview <laughs> uh, to understand how healthy or not uh, that team is. Notre Dame, 33 and 6 over the last three years. Pretty healthy. Um, and as we before we get into that, I, I think you know Matt. You know we've sort of been making calls, talking to people around Notre Dame. There's, there's. I, I think it'd be fair to say the optimism around Notre Dame football resuming is sort of right in line with it with how it is in other conferences. It might not be at the exact same time, but I don't know about you, but every day I feel more confident that we'll both be covering a, a Notre Dame college football season this fall. Yeah, I feel very confident in that regard. Uh, whether it takes on the, the shape or form that is currently on the schedule, we'll see. I mean, it'd be a miracle, I think, at this point if they ended up playing their opener in a foreign country. Uh, but I still think that game will get played stateside. Um, but I, I feel very comfortable, and or I shouldn't say comfortable, I'd say very confident that uh, they're at least going to be preparing for a season. Based on everyone I've talked to inside the program, they've been very, very judicious, even privately. There hasn't been a whole lot of moaning and grumbling about why can't we just get through this already? Why can't we bring people back? Um, They are are being very, very uh, thorough with their plans for bringing people back whenever that may be. At this point, I would guess early July, but but that seems to be a very moving target, um, and I don't think that's unique to Notre Dame. Uh, the president, John Jenkins, Father John Jenkins, has gone on a number of national media outlets, both print and uh, and TV, and discussed his plans. And I, I think it's very Notre Dame that uh, they think they can get away publicly with announcing school plans while completely ignoring uh its biggest money maker which is football and their plans for coming back but that's notre dame's dna for you uh, uh, at least publicly uh but but the people in the program have been very very sharp and uh i guess you'd say patient about what is the right way to come back and i do think they're eventually going to uh figure out how to do that yeah i'm with you i think that early july as far as the program being fully up and running in a, in a modern way, like in a, in a current circumstances kind of way, not a back to how it was 12 months ago, but June being sort of a, a soft reopen. And then July, you're actually preparing for the season with everybody on the roster. And I think that, you know, that kind of leeway um, is important because when I talk to parents of players, you hear some say like, 
my kid's already back there or my kid's coming last weekend. I know there there will some players will be returning this weekend. Some players are returning the weekend weekend after this. Um, but then you talk to others who was like, you know what, until I hear how the testing procedures, how the safety procedures are going to work, we're just going to wait until July. So I, th- I think that giving Notre Dame a month to sort of explain that to everybody and figure out what your protocols all are, but also sort of see them work in process with some players who are already here. I think overall that's a, that's a positive step. And like, I, I'm with you. I think that Notre Dame has been very judicious and responsible about this to date. I wouldn't expect that anything to change with that. Um, you know, they're fairly early in shutting things down to begin with. And I think they may be sort of towards, I don't want to say last, but not as quick to reopen everything as some other schools, um, uh, you know, the SEC in particular, um, and I think that's fine. Um, I, I don't think that the competitive advantage of not having an, a couple extra weeks of summer workouts is uh, significant anyway, and certainly it's not significant in terms of the world that we're living in now um, with everything that's going on. I agree. Uh, you said it off air. <coughs> Excuse me, off air. I think before we began, um, there's no real benefit to being first here. It, it, it's very college sports to. Uh, have everyone lined up, not wanting to be first and not wanting to be last when it comes to, to pretty much anything, especially with this. But, um, you know, the, the plans as they've been described to me, and again, this is such a, a fluid situation and we'll be thorough enough, but, I mean, they plan on testing everyone. They plan on giving them multiple tests if need be. I believe the football team will be staying, you know, in a hotel, at least initially, when they get back, and that will be their, you know, 100-man quarantine, if you will. I mean, I, they're not going to be out on the town or, or going off doing anything else. I mean, they they will be there, um, and they will be limited to there. At least that's the plan right now. Uh, obviously, more and more information comes in really throughout the country each and every day, and that could change by the time that this podcast airs. But um, I, I do applaud Notre Dame for at least uh, uh, not rushing back into things with something as serious as this. Yeah, I mean the the Morris Inn is a, an option that I've I've heard as far as like the the quarantine hotel for Notre Dame. It's on campus. Um, there's ample meeting space in there. Um, you know, it's not it's not quite as uh, big as like a road game hotel, but it's not. If you're the only people that are in there, I think that would probably work okay. Um, you know, and that's that's the challenge is like how do you expand your quarantine group from just your family to your position group to your side of the ball to all 100, you know, 25, 150 people who are involved in the program. Um, that's that's sort of the, the next challenge there. But, you know, with, with campus essentially shut down, it seems like some uh, you know, they have options and resources on campus to, to make that work. Pivoting to uh, the reason that we have this podcast at all, it's Notre Dame State of the Program, which is running today at The Athletic. And uh, Matt, I I sent you an advanced copy because I just think that highly of you um, that you're able to read my work before anybody else. But I mean, as you, as you go through a position by position analysis of where Notre Dame is, where they need to be, um, you know, some recruiting talk in there, changes to the coaching staff, those impacts, that's been, uh, I think a big storyline for Notre Dame, some schedule analysis, and then sort of a, a final assessment. Like how, when you're reading it, you're like, yep, yeah, this is pretty much like how I see Notre Dame as well, or like what, what stood out to you about where the program is trending positively or negatively heading uh, towards the season? Yeah, I was going to sell a couple of copies, copies of these on the black market, Phil Steele style, but um, 
nothing really surprised me as far as like we knew the running back room was very, very green. Um, the quarterback room, and I say room because I think highly of Ian Book, but the room is very green outside of that. I mean, if he gets hurt, maybe the other two guys are ready. Maybe they're not. We just don't know. And I think that's a frightening proposition if you're Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, we talked about this uh, off air a little bit. Uh, I think Barton Simmons was the one who mentioned it. I mean, you look at Georgia, which had at one point Jacob Eason, at one point Justin Fields, just had Justin uh, Jake Fromm. Now is bringing in Jamie Newman and JT Daniels. Uh, whether they get the desired results they want from that that run of quarterbacks remains to be seen. But that's what a quarterback room should look like. Like a lot of highly uh, elite quarterback rooms should look like. A lot of highly touted guys uh, pushing each other out, succeeding each other, and creating a very competitive room. And um, no, Ian Buck's not losing his job. I mean, he's not. He's just he's a three year starter. Who knows? whatever version of this offense will look like under Tommy Reese. He knows the coaching staff uh, inside and out. Um, I feel good about him, but but reading it, you know, in print gives me a little bit of pause about the, the entire makeup of the room. Uh, defensive line, it's weird because I look at the names there, I, I look at the production, and I think they're good. They're not necessarily a worry of mine. But then you look at all they lost from last year. And even last year, as good as they were, I mean, they were 33rd nationally in sacks and 59th against the run. They weren't exactly world beaters with what was supposed to be a really, really deep and great defensive line group. So uh, that said, uh, we, we've jokingly called this a Clark Lee appreciation podcast. Uh, and I will uh, uh, validate that again by saying that, like, I just think so highly as a guy, as, a, as the guy, of the guy as a defense coordinator that I, I, I'm just not that worried about the defense, regardless of, the questions on the back end, the questions up front, and, and you know the linebackers who I think might be the strength of the team. Looking at it, yeah, I, I think the the teaching aspect of of Clark Lee is is proven. I think that will be very good for Tommy Reese as well. Um, it was it was interesting sort of rereading last year's state of the program because I didn't I didn't mention Drew Wright at all, and he ended up leading the team in tackles. So I I have a lot of faith in Clark Lee figuring out okay who's the best guy and then maximizing what that guy can do. Um, I the defensive line is interesting because I I would much rather be strong at end than tackle. Last year they were strong at end and pretty good at tackle. This year I think they'll be really good at tackle, but then just okay at end. And that was something I talked to Clark Lee about as I was sort of reporting this out. Is you sort of invert what you were last year, um, and you want more pass rushers on the field than run stoppers. Last year, they had more pass rushers than they really knew what to do with or could use, um, so they were able to rotate so liberally. This year, I think they're going to have some really high-quality defensive tackles, but that doesn't do you a lot in third and 11 um, when you're trying to get somebody else off the field. So it's, it's you know, the, the last year's strength won't be this year's strength, but you look at what our questions about the defense at this time a year ago, linebacker looked like kind of a mess. Uh, and it turned out to a very steady and capable position over the course of that season. You know, Wusu Kormo was great. Um, they sort of made the secondary work uh, with Kyle Hamilton being in there. I think that uh, this more than any other Brian Kelly team, this you know the the upside of this group may be determined on how the graduate transfers do. Um, you know, whether that's Nick McLeod at corner, that's that's probably first on your list. Um, you know, Isaiah Pryor at safety. When I asked Clark Lee about the safety position, you know, he was very quick to he had a very detailed uh, re- response about Houston Griffith, but didn't have a lot to say about Pryor just yet. Um, 
I think that Mike Mickens, once he gets on his hands on Nick McLeod at corner, is going to be much more like, okay, this is a guy that can come in and start for us just because his body type is unlike anything else that we have. Uh, and then Bennett Skoranek at receiver, I think it's probably going to be underrated throughout the course of the season. Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot to be said for the fact that he actually would be Notre Dame's leading returning receiver if you just took his Northwestern stats and by like triple what everyone else on Notre Dame's roster has done. And then you got Trevor Spates, the running back from Stanford, uh, who made his decision last week. I, To me, that's much more in like the Freddie Canteen, Cam Smith realm of like, okay, it's a veteran presence in our, our running back room that could use it, opposed to this is a guy who's going to come in and, and run for 700 yards. Um, I think he's more to just sort of help your cause a little bit um, in terms of chemistry and leadership than he is unnecessary production that was my takeaway from it as well just looking at what he did at stanford i mean they're short on bodies and they're short on production in that room and so anytime you can add a fifth year guy who would presumably fit the notre dame makeup coming from stanford i think that's a good thing and when you look at how active notre dame has been on the graduate transfer market this offseason uh it would have been a shame if they weren't able to replenish their running back room in some way shape or form uh, after doing all that work. But, I, I mean, that's four now this offseason, which I don't know if I can name you four in the previous 10 years total of Brian Kelly. I mean, Cody Riggs is one. Avery Sebastian is another. Um, there just haven't been a whole lot of graduate transfers. Why do you think uh, that has been so prevalent for Notre Dame this offseason? I mean, to me, it's, it's recruiting misses more than anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason they're not taking graduate transfers at tight end offensive line um, you know, in linebacker and defensive end, really, right? It's because they've recruited those positions pretty well. Um, cornerback has been very poorly recruited. Um, safety was like a real struggle the last couple cycles as well. They've had some a high profile miss with Derek Allen, who uh, ended up transferring to Georgia Tech early on. You know, running back was was poorly recruited. Um, that's could. I, I, you know, Chris Tyree is a huge get coming in, uh, but to miss on Will Shipley hurt a lot. Um, and that's like, it's basically Lance Taylor's digging out of a hole that was created by the previous staff. So it's, I, I think it's, it's smart um, roster management because it's a, it's the best way to get to 85 scholarships because you can take these sort of individuals and pluck them off as you go. And what, if you're a, an evaluator of talent, what's the best evaluation process three years of high school tape or three years of college tape it's the three years of college tape you're you're getting a real read on what these guys are and are not um and i think that you know from a this is how you work like pretty it should be a pretty good example for younger players if you're freshman corners like ramon henderson um or caleb offered like I would think that Nick McLeod would be a benefit to you, uh, even if he's preventing you from playing. If you're, um, you know, Kyron Williams or Chris Tyree, you know, maybe hanging out with Trevor Spates will be a positive for you, um, even if that makes it harder for you to get on the field. So it's, I don't, I, I could see Notre Dame sort of consistently taking two uh, every year um, or sort of averaging two. I don't think they'll get four every year, but I mean, with Spates, he's got two years of eligibility remaining, and as Isaiah Pryor does as well, um, these are guys that can help you for more than one season. It's not just a, sort of a, a rental type of player. That, that could be a that could be a good thing as well. In the individual position write ups, um, 
in your story. I mean, you, you made barely passing mention of Chris Tyree and Michael Mayer under their respective positions, and then you obviously got into the more when uh, you get to the recruiting section. But uh, do, do you think either of those guys and um, uh, who am I who am I forgetting name? Oh, uh, Jordan Johnson. Sorry, who wasn't? I don't believe was even on the the receiver tight end uh, section until you got to recruiting. Do you think any of those three guys can make the kind of day one impact that you're seeing high four-star and five-star prospects at the Clemsons and Alabamas of the world doing against players who were, had those recruiting credentials and have the college experience ahead of them? My hunch is that Mayer uh, it has the best ability to be a freshman All-American, even though there's like his competition is is in some ways stiffer um, right. than what is facing Tyree or Jordan Johnson or even like Jordan Botello at defensive end, who was like a top hundred player in some places. So I mayor, I just think is incredibly unique physically um, even by Notre Dame standards for tight end recruiting. Um, so that, I think that should tell you plenty about how good he can actually be. Um, Tyree's skill set is unique to that position, but I mean, now with Spates in, in there, we're talking about six, I think, six scholarship running backs. Um, just not a lot of opportunity uh, if all guys are there. And then for whatever reason, freshman receivers have not clicked at Notre Dame um, under Brian Kelly. I don't know if it's a system that they're running. It's just too complicated or, or what to make of that. But it's it's hard for me to look at Jordan Johnson and be like, yes, he can do for Notre Dame what Justin Ross did for Clemson. Um mm-hmm. They just haven't had guys break out like that at that position. So it's to me, I would go Mayer one, Tyree two, maybe even Batello three. But I think he's a you know he's got a little bit to go because he played linebacker in high school somewhat. Um, and then you know Jordan Johnson, and I would throw Xavier Watson there too. It, it was he was a three star out of Nebraska, but uh, I think he will prove to be severely underrated you know, as his career unfolds here. Um, but I just like the tight end and the running back. I think that, that's where there can be freshmen of influence the most, which, you know, Brian Kelly said he expects like a freshman to, to have a serious impact like Kyle Hamilton on offense and defense. So you, you have to pick out multiple options here, uh, even though they, they might not present themselves uh, all that easily when you're just sort of looking at the guys as they come in. This one's might be a bit of a leap, but I, I feel like in the first five or six years of Brian Kelly's tenure at Notre Dame there was always a breakout success story of a guy who switched positions uh, that, that we just didn't see coming that we didn't even know was possible I mean CJ Procise is one that obviously jumped out because he played three different positions before turning into a pretty elite running back who I believe is still in the NFL to this day any chance Avery Davis could be that CJ Procise type character in a very uh unproven running back room I I don't see that um I am very curious to see, you know, where where does I don't know. I mean, how does Jafar Armstrong come back from last year's injury and then sort of struggling after he got back? Um, you know, Kyron Williams got off to a very shaky start, um, but they're they're they were sort of high on him when last season started. So it's I don't know. It's it's hard for me to 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 pick out that player who changed positions or has sort of been stuck in the background. You know, I think Houston Griffith maybe would be a candidate for that because you'd have to figure out, hey, he showed up, was a corner, then he was a safety, then he was a nickel, then he was a corner, now he's a safety. And I realize that's all in the secondary, uh, but he's bounced around quite a bit. And that was something I talked to Clark Lee about for the state of the program piece is, 
Notre Dame feels like they finally have him comfortable in his position. And that necessarily wasn't always the case. They were sort of playing him where he was pl- being played by necessity, not because that was what was best for Houston Griffith. Um, so that, that, that might be your guy, but I'm not sure he's a, a, a classic out of nowhere story. Cause we're talking about a top hundred prospect. What, what do you think? I, I think it's almost a blanket no or negative as far as how is the coronavirus pandemic affected recruiting at a place like Notre Dame. But uh, what, how do you see Notre Dame fighting its way back from this, so to speak? I mean, Will Shipley is a great example of maybe in a normal world, like this is where the fruits of their their ramped up recruiting efforts pay off and it, it they couldn't even get them on campus because of what's going on right now. But how do they go from where they are recruiting to where they want to be, which is what Brian Kelly said toward the end of last season, which they is basically impossible to do right now, given the state of the country. Yeah. It's, it's a bit, it's just a bad reality for Notre Dame when it comes to their recruiting. And I wrote about this in my mailbag last week. It's like, if you looked at the top 25 programs in the 24 seven sports composite in terms of how many commitments they've received since March 15th, which is the date Notre Dame was set to return from spring break. Notre Dame, I think, is in a three-way tie for 21st with just four. Um, you have Michigan in double digits. USC is nearly 10. Tennessee way out there. Um, they haven't been able to get enough guys to say yes at a time when there's still plenty of commitments going around. It would it would be one thing if there were fewer commitments happening right now um, and there were just going to be more guys available late, but that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. Um so it's, I think Notre Dame's best recruiting pitch is its campus and getting around the people in person here. Um, you know, that's that's sort of how Notre Dame's reputation has been built is sort of that residentiality and collegiality on campus opposed to, you know, programs that are, are there to more to churn out NFL prospects. So I think they're getting hurt when their their best recruiting pitch is on the shelf. They can't, they can't use it. So that, that hurts them. But that's not to say that they they should just throw their hands up and be like, well, we can't do anything. And I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I have the answers for the audibles that they could call or different directions that they could take. Um, I just know that I, you, a lot of prospects are committing elsewhere, um, and Notre Dame is sort of stuck here at 10 prospects. They may ultimately lose somebody like a David Abiara, their defensive end from Texas to a flip uh, to a Big 12 program. That's they're going to have to figure out how to find something to make this work because um, right now I, I just think they're having a, a rough go of it. It's interesting not to play devil's advocate, but you know, as we see the reality of recruiting throughout the current state of affairs right now, talking to people both at Notre Dame and elsewhere around the country, you're seeing more early commitments right now than ever because – there's a lot of anxiety out there. There are a lot of parents and a lot of kids who are, one, being pressured, as they always are, and two, are, are a little afraid those spots might not be available uh, during a part of the calendar where they normally are. And because of that, I do think, it, you know, this is you know an educated guess after speaking to a lot of people that you're going to see a rash of decommitments at some point around the country that you've just never seen before. And to take it a step further – you're going to see some really good like first or second round draft picks come out of places like the Mac more than ever because there're just going to be so many missed evaluations because there's so few opportunities to 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 evaluate these guys up close. 
is there any way for Notre Dame to pick up the pieces there? And I know it's a hypothetical conversation and a complete guessing game, but but you know, how well positioned are they to capitalize on all the the misfires and, and recklessness that's going on out there? Right yeah, now? I don't know if there's a, an answer to that because like who's to say that the high school football season is going to look right. normal in any way? And how do you find guys late? You know, if you're somebody like Bill Reese in charge of Notre Dame scouting, who I think does a really good job, you're watching high school tape. Well, what if there's not high school tape to watch? Um, then what are you supposed to do? So, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that four years from now, the NFL draft board may look completely bizarre um, because you're, you'll have guys that slip through the cracks that top programs missed on. Um Although if the transfer rules change, maybe it won't. Maybe all those guys will start their careers at Kent State and end up at Michigan um, or start their careers at Indiana and move to Notre Dame. I don't know. But it's um, it's a strange situation. I don't, I don't know if there's a way Notre Dame can necessarily capitalize on it other than just to save, stay vigilant and watch tape and track guys and figure out, okay, we're still involved with you Um you know, if Notre Dame goes out and has a good season, then maybe they can flip some guys late. And then, I mean, you look at the class that was signed on signing day 2017, you get Jafar Armstrong at the very end. You get Jeremiah Usukormo at the very end. You get Myron Tagovailoa Mosa at the very end. Um, you know, Jonathan Doerr is somebody who flipped late. So they they were able to sort of, uh, Jordan Jen Markeith flipped late. So they, they were able to sort of, be very late to the party and still do a pretty good job. Um, they may have to sort of treat the end of the cycle similarly as if like the coaching staff turned over uh, and just really go out and, and pound the pavement on some guys. Um, and I, you know, ultimately like Notre Dame is still a very huge, a very big brand. I, I don't see a reason why they couldn't flip people from Minnesota or Michigan state uh, at the very end or Virginia at the very end, if they're sort of trying to stay on them um, and just sort of see how their, their senior seasons unfold. One part of the state of the program we haven't gotten to yet, which I would say is the most important part of it, um, both in the short term and long term, because they're coming off, uh, despite what a lot of people want to tell you there, uh, not great year, uh, the offensive line. On paper, it should be great. Um, on paper, it probably should have been greater last year. You know, is the jury still out on Jeff Quinn? I I, I don't know. I mean, it, obviously the line hasn't been what it was under Harry Heastand. Uh, there probably aren't top ten picks on the roster right now. The way they had been three or four years ago, but there's still a lot of NFL caliber talent there, and I think that should help mitigate some of the questions at, at running back. Uh, what do you make of this line um, as far as? The returning bodies, the returning coaches, Chris Watt, new GA, who got one full practice in, uh, who knows the place inside and out. Um, and, I mean, let's face it, if there's one place you want to be stable at, it's there, especially when you don't get 14 spring practices and you're going to be going into training camp with, you know, who knows what kind of questions around the roster. I mean, whether Brian Kelly wants to publicly come out and say it or not, I think there's a lot of pressure on Jeff Quinn. Um, you know, and that, and there should be because that – that line should be really good, which means they have to take a, a significant step forward. Um, you know, with all five guys healthy, they were very banged up last year. But I think even when they were fully healthy, it wasn't a line that you saw like, wow, they're really killing it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have, a, they have a chance to be a line that can really kill it out there. So I, it's, you know, it'd be one thing if you looked at that group and be like, man, I don't, what are they going to do with this? Um, 
they have the material to be to have right. a great line. So the it's, I guess the way I describe it is like the ball is set on a tee for Jeff Quinn to hit it out of the park. Uh, but he's he's got to take that hack. Um, and if he does, then he's going to shut a lot of people up. Um, but I, I think to just to pretend like the line was great last year and there's no concerns and. You know, Brian Kelly has been very defensive about that. Um, that's fine uh, publicly, but I, I, I would hope privately facing, he would be like, Jeff, like, let's get this going because you've got a lot of material to work with. Let's let's put it all together. So I, it's kind of a, a rambling we'll see, but they have they have all the potential to be a very good line. It's almost like, and I don't want to make this a pile on Jeff Quinn podcast, but it's almost like the opposite of every position we've talked about as far as like, yeah, they got nothing at running back talent-wise that's proven, but hey, we think really highly of Lance Taylor. Like, they're going to figure it out. Clark Lee's going to figure it out. Offense line's a one part, without a doubt, you look at this roster and think they should be really, really good. And I don't want to overvalue Chris Watt, who has all of one spring practice under his belt in his coaching career as a GA, but he is a GA. And Notre Dame did not have a GA, a full-time GA, on the offensive line last year. Ben Cotton, who uh, had played at Nebraska a few years ago and had come on, ended up leaving the program, I think, right before the season in in training camp. And as far as was described to me, there was never really a full-time replacement for him. So uh, is that Quinn's fault? Is that uh, a a legitimate excuse for Quinn? I I don't know. But, I mean, Perry Heastan, Joe Moore, the the best offensive line coach in the world, they all need help. And Chris Watt's going to be there to try to provide it in some way, shape, or form. And I, I don't know if that's as simple as, all right, there's extra body in there. Everything's going to be okay right now. But I think that is a, a very uh, significant hole that was on last year's uh, staff, if you will, that, that, that kind of went under the radar and, and that, you know, you can't say didn't have some kind of negative impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, where, how good would the, would the linebackers have been as good last year if Nick Lozinski wasn't around? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Um, does that mean it would like we they would have been a disaster and they would have got run all over? No. Well, we're not talking about like value above replacement player or whatever or the uh, or wins above the, the baseball advanced stat nerd stuff. We're talking about just anyone on the body on there. This is an improvement <laughs> over nothing. Um, yes. So I think that Chris Watt can help that way, uh, and I you know I, I think that knowing what Notre Dame is about and being able to relate to the players that's that was a real strength of Nick Lazinski on the defensive side of the ball. That's why he's a senior defensive analyst now because um, they were figuring out okay how the hell do we keep this guy around because he's that valuable. Watt may develop into something similar. Um, and the I think talking to people close to the offensive linemen, they all really like him a lot, um, and they feel like he's got a connection to them that you know is just different than a position coach would have because he's he's younger and just it, it was playing in the NFL not that long ago. Before we leave, I, I know you want to tar and feather me about a story that ran last week that I was a part of, uh, so I'll leave the floor to you. <laughs> okay, for those who have not read the story, um, you should. It was on the Athletic, I think, or at the beginning of last week. And some of our national writers, who, who should be incredibly well-educated in college football, that's why they're national writers, <laughs> did a uh, sort of a, a Heisman draft of, was it five rounds? Uh, yes. Okay. And there, I believe we had six national writers participate in this? Seven. Seven. So 35 overall draft picks. Um, and you sort of went through, okay... And I, the points were awarded by Trip to New York, who wins it, uh, Heisman straw polls, um, which seems like you can sort of fudge that statistic since you, Matt Fortuna, run the Heisman straw poll. 
and got and got the first pick. But n- nothing shady going on here. Which, like, duh, Trevor Lawrence has got to be number one overall, and Justin Fields has to be number two. Like, I think that those are pretty obvious, right? I took Fields one. Oh, okay, Fields. <laughs> all right, that's fine too. Um, however, uh, a quarterback that I cover and you somewhat cover, Ian Book, did lasted until round five when Andy Staples took him. The round after he took Brock Purdy, which the last time I saw Notre Dame play, Brock Purdy happened to be there and he was running for his life and looked really poor, uh, whereas Ian Book looked good. So d- come to the defense of your national writers and explain why Ian Book could go in the fifth round of the Seisman. It's it, not just fifth round, 33rd out of 35th overall pick. Um, and it's funny because we did this draft in a Slack channel, and I feel like every time a quarterback got picked, someone would be like, why didn't Ian Book get picked? Why didn't Ian Book get picked? And yet no one actually took him. Um, I can only speak for myself and Andy, who ended up taking Ian Book, uh, also used with his first round pick, Tanner Morgan from Minnesota, who uh, is coached by the guy who recruited Ian Book to Notre Dame, Mike Sanford. So he's putting a lot of eggs in the Mike Sanford basket this year. God bless him. Uh, look, my philosophy, I had the number one pick. I took Justin Fields. I mean, let's face it, there's really only two guys you can take with the first pick. Um, and I chose Fields over Lawrence just because I think he's got some more Heisman moment opportunities this fall than Lawrence does outside of South Bend. Uh, but the only other quarterback I took was in round four, which is Sean Clifford, which uh, I think was obviously a risk. It is more of a flyer on a team I think is going to be good that's coached by a quarterback coach, Kirk Sharaka, who I think the absolute world of. And I think, you know, if Penn State were to have a breakout year, it would be in large part because that guy takes another step. But, I, I, you know, given the scoring system and given um, – you know, the number of quarterbacks who are always like at the highest odds. I, I, I just did not feel comfortable taking a whole lot of quarterbacks because there's only room for like three of them to make it to New York. I, I would take, I took Chuba Hubbard with my second round pick. I, I like the idea of potentially the best running back in the country, making it there over the fourth or fifth best uh, uh, quarterback. I took Jamar Chase, who was the best receiver in the country last year. And back-to-back, by the way, it was a snake draft. That, that caught a lot of people off guard. And Panay Sewell, I mean, why not, right? I mean, there are a lot of creative minds in Oregon between the university and Nike. And Bruce Feldman actually wrote a whole column last year about how he voted Panay Sewell number two overall on his Heisman ballot. So I thought in round five, why not just go out of left field and take someone that few people are actually thinking about? As far as Ian Book, it's a fair question because he's obviously more accomplished and better than – at least more than half of the people that were taken before him, if not you know eighty or ninety percent of them. My philosophy when it comes to Heisman, at least predicting who's going to win it, one, it's a war that's largely based on narrative. And when Notre Dame has had success there, whether it was Manti Teo runner-up, there was a, a very large narrative, and I put narrative in quotes behind him when he he almost won it in twenty twelve. Josh Adams had a nice run for for about half of twenty seventeen, and I think that also coincided with. The return of Notre Dame coming off a four and eight year and a running back who's putting up video game like numbers and is running behind an offensive line who's never going to win that award, but they were able to, to package it with the 33 trucking hats that uh, our friend Adam Rinneberg sent us a selfie in uh, during this quarantine because we're all going crazy here. Um, but you look at Ian Book, and I could only find the top 10 guys in Heisman voting. He may have gotten a, a vote here or there, but not top 10 in each of the last two years. Last year, his numbers were awesome. And you mentioned this in the state of the program story. His numbers were great. 
no one seemed to care or pay attention. I, I don't know why, but but that was the reality. The year before would have been the perfect year because that was an offense and a program that was in need of a B12 shot. And the minute he comes in in week four, week five against Wake Forest, he just took that place to another level and helped lead them to the playoff. And he didn't finish in the top 10 there either. So it's very hard for me to think of what a a guy in his third year starting who's already had so much production, hasn't gotten really any national love for it. What could he possibly do to to get on the radar now that he wasn't able to do the last two years. And obviously the easy answer to that is beat Clemson in November, uh, presumably go undefeated. I mean, if that happens, then yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll probably be on people's radars. But short of that, I just have a hard time seeing a path for him to, to really capture America's mind because for whatever reason, he hasn't been able to do it the last two years despite playing a lot of really good football. Yeah, I think they would – you almost need Clemson to be on the road and like essentially be the Georgia game last year, but – book be the reason that they win it um that would be a way you'd be like oh man this guy's this guy's got out a chance. trevor lawrence yeah exactly if you out trevor lawrence on the road early in the season when everyone's watching um you know maybe you'd be a little bit more of a contender i i guess i was just surprised like how is ian book going after brock purdy the camping world bowl aside one plays at notre dame one plays at iowa state um it's now is it now the Cheez Its Bowl or Yeah, it is or, now the Cheez It Bowl, which is okay. pretty disappointing. Um that that really could have made the whole experience better. Yeah, I just I don't know. I'm with you that like books numbers last year were really, really good. Um and nobody seemed to notice. I mean, nobody seemed to notice that I think it was what was he thirty four touchdowns, six interceptions? Six, six I think. Um, a lot of rushing yards. Yeah, it just and nobody noticed because the first month of the season was just kind of awkward and fits and starts. And that that's why you would need, you sort of, Ian Book would need a Heisman woman in September, which you're just not going to get against Navy, Arkansas, Wake Forest, Western Michigan. Um, I'm missing somebody in there too. But like the, the first month of the season is not going to turn any heads, even if he's putting up, even if he's sitting there at 20 touchdowns, one interception at the end of September. I don't think people are really going to be convinced by that because so much is going to be backloaded into Clemson and Wisconsin. Um, here's here's the one. It, this is going to sound crazy because it was so long ago and, and the guy left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. I, I think back to 2014 uh, when Notre Dame almost beat Florida State, and, and you know they were probably double digit underdogs entering that game. Jameis was the runner, was the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. Florida State was the reigning national champion. It was on the road. They had a big uh, winning streak, 6-0 versus 6-0. I came out of that game in the immediate aftermath of it thinking, holy crap, Everett Golson might be the second-best quarterback in the country. Like, we just saw, like, a mano for mano, Jameis versus Everett, you know, uh, shootout that was awesome. Like, I did not know Everett Golson had that in him to – throw what looked like the game-winning touchdown on the road in that kind of environment. And obviously, the way the rest of the season played out, um, it did not hold up. But I, I, that, to me, that that stays in my mind as, hey, it is possible to still um, to, to not lose voters, to not lose the na- nation's imagination if you uh, go punch for punch. Like, if Clemson wins 33-30 at Notre Dame in November and they're both undefeated, and it's Ian Book going against Trevor Lawrence, and it comes down to the final play. Like I, I wouldn't write Ian Book off, but but like that's a very specific scenario 
that I think you have to count on for, for someone who's as known already nationally as Ian Book to, to, to break through to that next level. Yeah, I just think for, for him to do that, for him to sort of win over people that he hasn't won over, you're going to need the image of him celebrating after the Clemson game um, and probably celebrating the game-winning touchdown that he threw with 30 seconds left. And yeah, you're right. That's a very narrow path to sort of changing hearts and minds but i think that's probably the path that brian kelly is on as well with, with some members of the fan base where they, they want to see sort of that signature win that you remember where you were when it happened unfortunately most of us will be at home um that's they they need sort of that kind of moment and if ian book can be the face of that kind of moment to me that that's almost worth like 20 touchdown passes um because like i think just from a numbers analysis as VM book sort of leaves you a little bit cold about what, what he is or isn't. Um, you know, I, th- I think Ian books improvement as a, as a fifth year senior is going to be much more down to moments than statistics. Um, and like you were talking about earlier, it's, it's Heisman moments that get the job done. Um, not, not your statistics against Iowa state or New Mexico or Bowling green, because, sort of every quarterback nationally has those sort of all you can eat statistical games um, against overmatched competition. It's, you know, did you lead the, did, did you lead the team down the field at the end of the game of Georgia for the game winning score? And you were the reason it happened. Um, You know, I thought he played a very good game at Georgia, um, but you know, sort of breakthrough again, you're going to need the images of celebrating after that kind of game because the quarterback was the reason that you won. Yeah, I agree. And hey, maybe Tommy Reese is, is Joe Brady, and he's going to be the key that unlocks Notre Dame's offense to another level. And Ian Book is the next Joe Burrow, which was funny because as we did this exercise, we were like, what pick would Joe Burrow have gone at this time last year? I think he would have been picked among the top 35 because he was coming off a uh, a 10-win season and a major bowl win, but he wouldn't have been you know a top two-round pick, that's for sure. I think he probably would have still fallen in the Brock Purdy fourth round uh, category, which is kind of ridiculous when you say that out loud. Brock Purdy's going to win it uh, next year. You heard it here first from Pete Sanders. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Um, I'll hold you to that. Okay. All right. Well, I, unless you have anything to add, perhaps this is a good a spot to wrap up uh, our Notre Dame State of the Program podcast. I, I think we uh, we are uh, exiting on a high note with that with that uh, comment. Excellent. Well, uh, the Shamrock will be back. Uh, in the month of June, again, we are efforting to get a couple high-level guests that have similar hairstyles to Matt and myself. Uh, I will continue to make those efforts uh, to see if we can get both those individuals to join us. Um, I think you would love both of them. But um, until then, until the return of the Shamrock, thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Thank you for subscribing to The Athletic. Um, our podcast rolls on, and uh, it's. I feel like both of us are, are feeling some good vibes about we're going to have legitimate football to talk about in the not-too-distant future. So until then, he's Matt Fortuna. I'm Pete Sampson. Thanks for listening.